This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, coming to you from Gadigal Land. And this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. Australia's average temperature has already increased by 1.5 degrees. Heat waves and extreme weather events have become more severe. And in response, the public has made its feelings clear. Most Australians want to transition to clean energy. But in this country, the climate wars never die. The coalition, which claims to back a target of net zero by 2050, seems to oppose any policy that could help get us there. And the Labor government often appears on the back foot when defending even modest policies. Today, I'm talking to climate and environment editor Adam Morton and national news editor Patrick Keneally about the gap between public support for clean energy and the political backlash. It's Friday, the 23rd of February. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Good morning, Patrick. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Adam. Hey, Gabs. Adam, you wrote a column this week that felt a bit frustrated. What drove you to write it? Yeah, I've got no idea how you got that impression. The column was an attempt to look at the state of the climate debate in Australia right now. And I think it was particularly driven by the response to some of the policies that we've seen come out lately in the political and media discussion around that. A lot of the focus still seems to be on the idea that we don't need to change anything. I mean, we broadly accept the fact that climate change is real and that we need to transition the economy. And even politicians who for a long time have opposed action now sort of go that far. The coalition is committed to net zero. We're supposed to be headed in that direction. But each time we see a policy come out, a lot of the reaction is based on the idea that it's suspicious to try to actually change anything. It's weird to do something We get a lot more scrutiny of that than we do of sticking with the status quo, which we've agreed we cannot do. Uh, There's this real status quo bias. The country's finding it really hard to shake, and I just wanted to have a look at that. Yeah, Patrick, I think the response to the government's long-awaited fuel efficiency standard was all too familiar. Were you surprised about some of the responses? It was a very predictable response. I think the Prime Minister needs to come out and explain why in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis that Labor's created it's a good idea to have a great, huge new tax on cars and utes. You saw things like it's a war on tradies, a war on utes. And under Mr Albanese's new ute tax, the tradies will have to pay 
It might mean that they don't even have the same choice that they've got at the moment between the vehicles available. It's nothing of the sort. You know, countries around the world, including Canada, the EU, the US, have had emission standards for decades. Like California had emission standards right back in the 1970s. And, and I don't know if you've been to the US recently or seen some of the vehicles coming out of the US. They're, they're pretty fond of a pickup truck over there. I don't think it's going to destroy the ute. So I think... Yeah, people do need to get a grip on this one. Transport emissions as well have been the parts of the economy that are actually increasing in emissions over the past decade and something needed to be done. It was quite clear we're paying more on average than, you know, people overseas for fuel. We import almost exclusively and we don't need to be doing that. (laughs) We can save money and reduce our emissions quite easily just by introducing a fuel emission standard. It makes so much sense and I'm surprised it wasn't done earlier, but yet we have this completely over-the-top reaction to what is very sensible policy. This is so belated, right? The coalition government under multiple prime ministers talked about introducing this standard for years. It was developed, pushed up to the line, and then they walked back from it at least twice. Um, work was done under several ministers. Josh Frydenberg, six years ago, famously wrote a piece in the then Fairfax Papers under the headline, Stand by Australia for the Electric Car Revolution. Now, it wasn't policy specific, but it was saying that electric cars were going to be like the iPhone. They'll be ubiquitous very soon. We need to be heading down this direction. Every time one of these policies comes up, we're acting as though it's come out of the blue. And as Pat said, transport emissions are skyrocketing. They're up 20% since 2005. Nationally, we're driving bigger and bigger cars. They're dirtier than the cars in comparable countries. Our fuel is dirtier. Something needs to be done about it. But there is some lingering opposition in the community You know, there was this so-called reckless renewable rally in Canberra recently. The only thing that is renewable about renewable energy is the cost about so-called renewable energy. So I want to welcome you today. I want to welcome you because of this. Is this influencing the discussion? How big is this movement? Do we know, Adam? I mean, it's hard to say. There is a real pushback in parts of the community against what is a really ambitious rollout of renewable energy that's underway. I mean, the government's target is 82% of our electricity coming from renewables by 2030, and that means a lot more solar and wind farms, a lot more batteries, a lot more transmission lines. We're just short of 40% now. And it's only natural that you would expect some resistance to change on that scale. And I think what we're seeing is a mix of some genuine heartfelt local resistance from people who are concerned about infrastructure being built near their homes. As a sixth-generation farmer, I don't care what they think a millionaire. That's their, that's their business. I couldn't care less. I'm here today to fight for the next generation. It's the next generation that they're going Mixed with some long-term opponents to renewable energy and any sort of climate action that is being fanned by um, some politicians. But on top of that, ladies and gentlemen, you know it's a swindle. It's a massive multinational swindle underpinned by your taxpayers' dollars. And then on top of that, at the rally in Canberra earlier this month, we saw some conspiracy theorists type opportunists jumping on board who are opposed to a whole range of things. The only way to truly stop them is we have to reject net zero. Net zero is a sellout to the globalists. 
is a wealth transfer from the Australian nation to the Communist Party. I personally think the evidence at this stage is not that this is at a scale of the opposition we saw, say, to the carbon price that was introduced when Julia Gillard was Prime Minister. Then we saw thousands of people going to Canberra for rallies. This was a few hundred. Uh, I'm not saying it's not real, but it feels to me in line with what you will get when you're trying to take on this type of change. And I think the real question is, should these, you know, few hundred voices being given the sort of media amplification that they currently are, is that really representative of the sentiment in the community? There were a number of national MPs at that rally in Canberra and David Littleproud backed the moratorium on renewables. This is pure insanity. We just need the common sense that you have brought to this place today to be heard in that building in there and know that the National Party will stand shoulder to shoulder in making sure that a better way is sorted. And yet David Littleproud came out this week and I'm not sure it was a policy. I might need Patrick Hugh to explain what it was, but he said he's considering household solar and battery schemes. Is this a good sign? What's underlying this I think it is a good sign. Hopefully it means that there might be a way through all of this, that MPs who represent regional areas can see the benefits for communities in having a bit of energy independence, in the benefits for households. And it's quite popular amongst consumers. You've seen the massive uptake of rooftop solar, particularly in regional areas of Australia. It's, it's hugely popular. So, you know, I think Little Proud might be seeing this as, you know, politically expedient way of tackling the renewables issue, but also it hasn't stopped the coalition from also talking about things like small modular reactors, which still seem a pie-in-the-sky solution to the cuts in emissions that we need immediately. Adam, is there a place for these kind of household solar and battery schemes in the transition? Oh, absolutely. And I do think we should be doing more of it. That said, it does feel to me like this is a bit of a political thought bubble at this stage and the idea that we can do just a bit of this plus nuclear added on and we know nuclear is, if ever, viable for Australia decades away and likely to be massively expensive. It's far too early to place too much store in what they're saying, I think. I think there'd also be some both moderate Liberal MPs and Labor MPs who'd be a bit incredulous about Little Proud's you know, road to Damascus conversion on renewables at this point in the debate, considering they've spent the last decade fighting against them and all the rhetoric around this. I think, you know, you'd have to take it with a grain of salt, whoever you are. The government seemed to predict there might be a culture war about the fuel efficiency standard and tried to get on the front foot, but are they doing enough? Are they talking about their climate policies enough? What I think is striking is the extent to which the government is doing quite a lot on a domestic front now. But I don't know that they are really wanting to lead hard with it. We saw their emissions vehicle standard policy dropped on a Sunday morning. Mm. It's not exactly screaming we're confident that this won't get attacked and that we can sell the message. There's a real, I think, internal conflict within the government about how hard to go on these issues because the policies they are putting in place will transform the country if they're successful. And there's a stack of stuff coming down the pipe. Give us, the, give us the key points that we need to know about, Adam. Well, the biggest one is they have quadrupled a program to underwrite large-scale renewable energy to get to the targets they've set for 2030. That could really be transformative. It hasn't really got the attention it might have because it's got a really boring name. It's called the Capacity Investment Scheme, but it's huge. They're doing their clean cars policy, which they haven't really shouted from the rooftops about, I think. 
And then there's a bunch of stuff that's less sexy but could be really have a big impact. They are doing this year sectoral plans across different parts of the economy, which will explain how they can get to net zero in areas outside of electricity transmission, which is really the only one where progress is being made at this stage. And at the end of the year, they will be used to help decide a national emissions target for 2035. And that's when the rubber will really hit the road. What they're doing at the moment is largely what they felt they could get away with while in opposition and trying to avoid attacks from the coalition and their backers in the media. But they're really going to have to escalate after this. So the next 12 months are going to be key. And the other big thing they're doing is they've created a net zero authority, which, again, sounds dull, but it's meant to oversee the transition, particularly in regions that will be really affected by this change. That's really important work. What what do we do with the workers and the communities who are going to feel the brunt of this, who have worked in uh, traditional fossil fuel industries? So, you know, if you add it all up, that's quite significant. We don't hear a lot about it, I don't think. Uh, The Prime Minister gave a speech in Newcastle last Friday where he flagged that there'll be another big policy coming, or a policy commitment at least, to try to drive new green industries. That will potentially be another big part of what they're doing in the coming months. Yeah, Adam, that speech in Newcastle until you told me about it, it hadn't even been on my radar. Why aren't we hearing about that? I mean, to be fair, there wasn't a huge amount of new in it beyond a general indication of the direction they were headed in. There was no concrete announcement. But I did, in writing the column we referred to earlier, go back through a number of the Prime Minister's media releases, press appearances, transcripts from recent weeks, and fossil fuels and climate change barely gets a mention. And I assume that's in part because we are in a cost of living crisis. Mm. There's a general sense that that is understandably the most important thing to most Australians at the moment and will be whether they can respond to that will be decisive at the next election. We're sort of in between. Uh, you know, we're taking climate change really seriously, domestically at least, on the one hand, and on the other hand, We spend a lot of the time in this country pretending it's not that important and we don't have to do very much about it. I mean, if you listen to most media and what most politicians talk about, with the exception of Chris Bowen, I think the climate change minister who's doing a lot, it's just not a frontline issue. You'd feel like at some point that has to come together and can't continue. And the public has said, I think, in the way they've voted at the last federal election, that they want to see real action here. Um, I guess there's a risk for the government whether the public recognises the action that they are taking if the government from the Prime Minister down isn't advertising it and talking about why it's important. There is something very strange about the Prime Minister giving a speech at Newcastle Town Hall last Friday. Across the other side of the river is the world's largest coal export terminal. And yet we've got this massive blind spot here about talking about it. You know, what are we going to do? Yeah, net zero is fine. For Australia, and we may get there if all these policies work out and we you know, manage to plot the course through over the next, you know, 30 years. But what about our fossil fuel export industry? We're the third largest exporter of fossil fuels in the world. And yet no one really wants to talk about that aspect of it. Yep, absolutely. And we had the COP28 climate summit in Dubai in December where nearly 200 countries agreed for the first time that we need to transition away from fossil fuels in line with the science. There's nothing binding about that, but it's a pretty strong indication about where things are going. We're the world's third biggest fossil fuel exporter. 
We're still looking to substantially expand our gas exports. Gas is the biggest driver of growth in global greenhouse gas emissions over the last decade, and we're just not talking about it. And the government on that is, I think it'd be wrong to say that it's doing nothing and not considering it, but publicly the line is that there's nothing we need to do about gas at the moment and expansion is fine. And I really don't think that's a sustainable position. I'd just sort of add to that conversation about cost of living that we're having. It'll be interesting to see whether the government goes hard in trying to sell the emission standards for vehicles in the fact that it will save money for consumers. If your car is more efficient and you pay less in petrol, you're going to have lower bills overall. At the moment, I feel like that's getting kind of lost and blown away and it doesn't help that, you know, News Corp is hostile to it. But I think, you know, there's a good case there that the government can make in a cost of living crisis that Australians are paying too much for fuel. And it's a big expense for households. So anything that helps with that should be welcomed, really. Absolutely. And also, we don't talk about things like health benefits of having a cleaner car fleet. You know, there's all these hidden costs to what we currently drive. And also going back to electrification of households as well, uh, gas prices are obscene and anything that can help consumers move away from using gas in the household, to which there's also huge health benefits, you know, that's also going to help with bills at the end of the day. So these are kind of things we might see them talking about at the end of this year or early next year leading up to the election? I think it's a tricky path for the government to navigate. I'm not a media advisor for the government, but I would see that there is a way in which you could talk about these things in a cost of living lens that, you know, might help the government. Yeah, I mean, I agree it's tricky. So I'll I'll live in like wish fulfilment land here rather than um, maybe what's realistic. But it'd be nice if the government felt a bit more confident that this is something people want rather than this is something they need to be living in a crouch while they're making significant change. It feels very much in fear of the whack they might get in parts of the media and the impact that will have. Really be nice to live in a world where that wasn't the case. Next, sleep, state elections and Swifties. Hey, Jane Lee here with a quick note about The Guardian. Guardian Weekly is the only place you can receive The Guardian's independent journalism in print in a magazine that gets delivered to your door. It covers global news, long reads, the environment and more. The Guardian's offering new Australian subscribers 12 issues for $12, which is 90% off the normal price. The offer's only available until the 11th of March. So just search Guardian Weekly subscription to find out more. And for the full terms and conditions, head to theguardian.com forward slash weekly terms. Thanks. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Adam, what is it for you this week? As you know, Gabs, I'm a Tasmanian and uh, Tasmania is in the grip of state election fever. Um, fever? But we are, mm. uh, yeah, not quite. I'm not sure this is the election that's um, gripped the nation or even the state. We're a week into a five-week campaign. Who doesn't get excited about Hare Clark with Robson rotation? It's I, I really, a fascinating topic. This is part of his dream come true, isn't it? <laughs> it's all I can talk about. Um, but I do think it's an interesting election to watch for a couple of reasons. Um, we're 10 years into a Liberal government that is really, I think the polite way to say it might be sh- showing signs of fatigue, ended the term in minority and a fair bit of disarray. There's a general view that the State Labor Party hasn't done much work in 10 years in opposition and it's got its own massive internal divisions. There's the potential that we'll see a really significant expansion of the crossbench in line with what we've seen nationally could make for a really interesting parliament, which is expanding from 25 to 35 members. I do think once we get closer to the day, it'll be one worth watching. Patrick, what can't you get out of your head? Uh, I loved a piece actually from our colleagues in the UK by Tim Dowling. He uh, looked at the trend amongst uh, Gen Zers apparently who like to go to bed at 9pm. So he set a task for himself uh, of going to bed at 9pm every night for a week to see if it really was the secret of happiness. And And he found out that, uh, which is what I would expect, is that it's actually quite hard to go to bed at 9pm if you're used to going to bed around 11.30 or, or midnight. But at the end of it, he said he ended up sleeping about nine hours because uh, you'd still get up around seven or, you know, six, and um, he didn't necessarily feel any better from it all. Oh, that um, makes me feel good. But it was interesting that he was saying that uh, your bedtime starts getting earlier as you get older, so you end up being, you know, in your 70s or 80s and going to bed at uh, 9 or, or 10 p.m. So he said, you know, if you're 25 and you're going to bed at 9 p.m., where does that leave you in, you know, a few the decades' time? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think you both know what I can't get out of my head. I've got the friendship bracelets. I'm going to take the moment and taste it on Sunday night when I go to see Taylor Swift with my 13-year-old niece, Tilly. I may never be the same again. I'm just putting it out there. I also like the fact that we uh, missed, um, we got absolutely scooped by the story of the week on our doorstep at the Guardian Australia office in Surrey Hills. Did you know, Adam, that Taylor Swift dined next door to our Sydney office? No, but I have dined there myself and I did feel just a little bit closer to Taylor. (laughs) So, you know, I quite enjoyed the experience. Thank you so much for joining us today, Patrick. Pleasure. Thank you, Adam. Thanks. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Daniel Simo. The executive producer is me, Gabrielle Jackson. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe or follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. For everyone who celebrates, happy Taylor Swift in Sydney weekend. And full story, we'll be back with you on Monday. We'll see you then. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.